Listen, if you don't know me, here's my introduction to you. I'm a sinner saved by God's grace and called to preach his word by his grace. That's all you need to know. Listen, we've got a very short amount of time. We're going to dive right in. Titus chapter 3, if you have your Bible, go turn in there. And as you're turning, I want to put this, this image in your mind to help us understand the context of this book. And I kind of stole this from a man named Jerry Bridges from a book he wrote called The Discipline of Grace. And now listen to this exercise. I want to give you two scenarios, two different days, and then I'm going to end with asking a question. So here's the first scenario. Imagine you're having a great day spiritually. Here's what I mean by that. You wake up, your alarm goes off early, you grab your Bible, you don't even look at your iPhone when you first open your eyes. You grab your Bible, you get in God's word, and you are just feasting on his word. You spend some time in prayer, and then you get ready, you grab a cup of coffee, you head to work, and uh, there's no traffic, and you get to work, and your, your boss is happy with you, and you know, everything just goes smoothly in your day. And you feel like you're constantly worshiping from the start to the end. And at the end of the day, you're inside with your family and you're making dinner and you hear a knock on your door and it's your neighbor. And they come to you and they say, okay, listen, you've told me about this Jesus person and about being a Christian. I wanna know more. Can you share with me what the gospel is? And so you have the opportunity and you share the gospel there with your neighbor. Now that's the first day, here's the second day. We have a terrible North Carolina thunderstorm at 8.30 and your power goes out and your alarm doesn't go off so you wake up late, you're running behind on the way to work, you spill your coffee all over you, now you look foolish walking into work, you walk in, you sit down on your desk and here your boss comes and he sets a big stack of paperwork on your desk and he says, okay, get busy. And then next thing you know, your coworkers are complaining to you and very quickly, you're having a day just like Alexander from the children's book, Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. <laughs> but that same day, you get home, and you're inside cooking dinner, and once again, you hear that knock. And your neighbor says, hey, I, I want to know more about this Jesus person. Can you share the gospel with me? Now, here's the question to both of those days. Would you be more inclined to think that God would bless the first day but not the second day? In other words, would you feel more confident in sharing the gospel in that God would bless that from the first day rather than the second day? Now, if we're honest, all of us would say, well, yeah. But we know that theologically, our works, what we do, doesn't change God's grace upon our life. And so that's what Paul is writing to here in Titus chapter 3. There is this legalism of the Jewish Christians that has crept into the church. They thought that their works, that what they did would earn God's grace and earn more blessings. And so Paul writes to Titus to set the record straight on how grace and works fit together. So here's the sermon title for today. A gracious gospel demands countercultural living. A gracious gospel demands countercultural living. So if you're there with me, Titus chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1 and read to verse 11. The word of the Lord says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But then listen to this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Pray with me this morning. Father, by the power of your spirit, fill this place. Soften our hearts, Lord, to hear your word. And God, get me out of the way so that you can speak to your people. Be honored and glorified, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. So as we come to this, I need to give you just a little bit more context on who Paul is writing to and the setting. And so Titus is a fellow laborer of the gospel. You can think of him similar to, uh, to Timothy. And Paul writes two letters to Timothy. And Titus had been given the job to set up the churches and on an island south of Greece called Crete. And Titus was not only to set up the churches, but also to appoint the pastors and the elders of these churches. And this was a pretty big task. Crete was an island that was roughly 3,200 square miles. So think of it as about the size of the Piedmont Triad. So Titus has a pretty big job here to set up pastors in all these churches, some 40 towns. And Paul wants to make sure that as Titus does this, they're set up with a right understanding of God's grace and and works that flow from that. You see, the culture of Crete was very immoral. Listen to the the way one Greek historian said it. He said it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. In other words, if a Cretan moved next door, you were moving the next day. (laughs) You didn't want to be around them. They were known for being liars, gluttons, drunks, sexually promiscuous, and just totally immoral. Whatever they wanted to do, they did. And so they have this culture of immorality that's mixing with this legalistic mindset of Jewish Christians saying that they have to obey the law so that they can see God's grace. And it was poisoning the gospel and poisoning the works of the church. And Paul says, this can't happen. And so he writes verses 1 through 11. Before we jump into verse 1, I want to give you one more illustration because the way Paul has set up this passage is very unique. It's a chiastic structure. So if you're a literary person, you know that that means in poetry that it it starts with one thing and then it moves to another and by the end it's moved back to what it started with. So here's the illustration I wanna give you. Uh, Imagine books set up on a shelf. And on the end of these books are two bookends. And you know what a bookend is? It's either a heavy piece of, of marble or metal and it holds the books so that they don't fall over. 
And so very clearly what Paul will do is he will give us a bookend of commands in verses 1 through 2. And then he's going to move to the books, the gospel. And he's going to give us the gospel in beautiful, articulate language. And then he's going to give us one last bookend command for us as the church. And so as we move through this passage, that's the image I want you to have in your mind. And so with that in mind, let's move to verse 1. And I want to give you this point for verses 1 and 2. Followers of Jesus must live counterculturally in the world. Followers of Jesus must live counterculturally in the world. Here's, here's what Paul says in verse 1 and 2. He, he says to remind them to be submissive and obedient to rulers and authorities. He's going to zoom in and say specifically our government, we need to be submissive and obedient. Now this idea of submissiveness and obedience, you may say, well, that's really the same thing, right, Tanner? Well, it's not. Submissiveness in the Greek here is actually referring to our attitude. And the obedience is our action. So Paul's saying that as we approach governing officials, as we approach our government, we're to submit in our attitude and in our actions. We're to do what they say. But don't miss his very first verb, remind. This was not a new command. Neither is this a new command that I give you today because we know that as Christians we are to submit to authority. Paul tells us in Romans 13 that, that God has put government in place and that in his divine sovereignty and in his plan, those who are in office are there because God put them there. And we can find great comfort in that as Christians. And so we're to submit and obey in attitude and in action. But look at the next thing he says. He says, be, or he says to be ready for every good work. The idea of this word to be ready, it comes from a word that means fitness or training. The idea behind it is that of an athlete who would be training for a race or a fight or whatever you, whatever you want to think. They're training for a specific purpose. Paul says, be ready for every good work. Make sure you're training. I like it this way. Paul could have said it this way. Make sure you are a regular attender of the gym of countercultural living. Make sure you're a regular attender of the gym of countercultural living because when we live counterculturally, we show Christ in our actions as believers. And so maybe you're sitting there going, okay, how do I practically show this though, Tanner? How do I practically live out being ready for every good work? Well, I'm glad you asked. Hold on to that question because Paul's gonna answer it to us in the books when we get to the gospel. So hold on to that. Look at verse 2. He, Paul's going to shift now from just talking about governing authorities. But in verse 2 he says, speak evil of no one. And by the end of verse 2, he's going to give us this phrase of all people. He's moved from just the government to now all people these, this command is applicable to. He says, don't speak evil of them. What does that mean? Well, it's the idea of blaspheming someone's name, reviling them or slandering their name. And if you're like me, when I read that, I was like, okay, that doesn't apply to me. I, I speak nicely of people. I love people well. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. Listen to some of these questions. This will let us know if we're speaking evil of others. When someone wrongs you, are you quick to call your friends and tell them about it? When you hear someone's mistakes, are you quick to go and spread those mistakes and tell people about them? What about this? When you speak of others behind their back, would you feel comfortable saying it to their face? And then one last thing. 
And we don't say this enough. Do you ever say things that are true, but they're actually not even fruitful? In other words, we say them and they're true. It happened, but it's not fruitful for the conversation. Even that is speaking evil of someone. And you say, Tanner, why is this important? Well, because when we engage in speaking evil of other people, we align ourselves with those who stood in the crowd and mocked and spat on our Jesus. When we slander other people's names, we are aligning ourselves with those in the crowd. You say, well, you're being a little harsh here, aren't you, Tanner? I'm not talking bad about Jesus, just the guy on the street. The Bible tells us that every person was made in God's image. No matter their age, their gender, their race, language, whatever distinction you want to make, every single person was made in God's image. And so when you slander that person's name, what you're actually doing is slandering their creator. You're saying, God didn't make them good enough. And you are spitting in the face of your God as you revile those around you. Listen, I know these are hard words. <laughs> this has wrecked me this week. Just be honest with you. We speak evil of people all the time. But listen, this is my prayer that Green Street Baptist Church would not be known as men and women who gossip. Amen. That our city, our culture would know Green Street Baptist Church as men and women who encourage and who speak truth, but we do it with grace and love. Not men and women who speak evil of others, but men and women who love like Christ has loved. This is the command we've been given. Paul goes on. He doesn't stop there. He's going to keep throwing them at us. He said, avoid quarreling and be gentle. Really, these two things work together. This idea of quarreling, it comes from a word that's uh, referencing a literal fighter. It's a metaphor. Paul's saying, don't fight with your words. Rather, be gentle. In other words, when you encounter arguments, don't seek to be the one that wins the argument. Seek to be the one that brings peace from it. If you're like me, that's not easy. I'm ready to square up and just like throw down when someone wants to insult me. You want to go? Let's go. Paul says, no, don't do that. Seek peace. Be gentle. Don't be a brawler, a fighter. And then one last thing he's going to tell us. He says, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now really, this last command serves as a summary of everything he's just said. And if we can understand this last command will understand what Paul's saying in these first two verses. And you say, well, that's a really odd phrase, perfect courtesy toward all people. And I would agree with you. I didn't know what it meant. I studied it for a week and was like, this is really hard to understand. <laughs> but here's, here's what I came up with. The, the phrase is best translated into this English word that sadly, we don't use a whole lot anymore. And that word is meekness. Maybe you've heard that in the church before. And a lot of people think that meekness is weakness, but in no way is meekness weakness. You see, the most popular illustration of meekness is that of a, a horse with a bit and a bridle. You know, a horse that's running free in a field, is, it's powerful, it's strong, it's fast. I mean, it's, it's beautiful to watch a horse run. But as soon as I put the bridle on and the bit in its mouth, that horse goes wherever I want it to. I'm in control. But you know that horse is still just as powerful and strong and fast as it was before? 
You see, that's exactly what meekness is. It's power under control. And while I love that illustration of meekness, I really don't think it, it, it just scratches the surface of what it is. And so rather than me trying to explain it, I want to take you to a place in scripture that we see meekness exhibited. And that's in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus is there with the disciples. It's the night before he's betrayed and they're having the last supper. And they all have sat down and Jesus gets up and he grabs a pitcher and a basin and he wraps a towel around himself. And the savior of the world, the God of the universe gets on his knees and he washes the feet of sinners. And as he does that, he takes their filth upon him. That's what meekness is. It's our God in humility loving us. Here's, here's my definition of meekness. It's surrender to God's will in difficult times or situations out of gratitude for God's grace. It's saying, God, I don't want to do this. This is too hard, but I'm going to do it anyways because you are so gracious to me. That's what meekness is. And Paul says, show meekness to everyone, all people. Don't miss that. Not just the people in the church. We start here. We start by washing each other's feet and loving each other well here in this building. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't even stop with your family or your neighbors. No, it's to all people. Hear me loud and clear this morning, church family. This command is to all people, the governing officials, to the person who cuts you, cuts you off in traffic, to your boss who micromanages you, to your coworker who gets on your nerves every day, to your best friend who's drowning in alcoholism, to the wife or husband who's verbally abusive to you, Students to the teachers that are unfair to you. Athletes to the coach who makes you run extra for no reason. Everyone is included in this command. Even the rapist, the murderer, and the person who works in the abortion clinic. Paul says, show meekness to all people. Be like Christ and get on your knees and wash feet. This is our command. You say, Tanner, how can we do this? This is an impossible command. Yeah, it feels that way. But lucky for us, we've finished one bookend and we're entering into the glorious section of books that is the gospel. And in this section, we're gonna see how in the world we can get on our knees and wash the feet of sinners. So notice with me in verses three through seven, followers of Jesus can live counterculturally because of God's gracious gospel. So Paul's gonna show us six things in these five verses. This is one long sentence in the Greek. And I wanna point out six things and I'm gonna move very fast so that we can understand this gracious gospel. And so verse three is by far my least favorite verse in this whole passage because it shows us our sinfulness. This reveals the ugliness of our heart. Listen to what it says. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating others and hated by one another, or hating one another. 
immediately Paul links us with the people he's just commanded us to wash feet. He says, show perfect courtesy to all people. You know why? Because you were just like them before Christ. So the first thing I want us to see is that we needed saving. Our sinful state before Christ is that of society. We're no better. He says we're fools. We lacked both knowledge and sense, both information and good judgment. We were disobedient, meaning we defied authority and we sought our own welfare. We were led astray to enslavement by our own desires and passions. We let sin rule our heart and dictate what we do or don't do. And we spent our days in malice and envy, meaning we were wicked and mean-spirited and never satisfied, always wanting more. But he goes on, it's not just that, we're hated by others. Quite literally, we could say it this way, we were detestable to other people. They looked upon us and said it's impossible to love them. And then one last thing, he says we hated others. And now this verb for hate is different than the one before it. You see, this second verb of hate, it's referencing God's hatred. You see, Romans 9.13 helps us understand how God hates. In that verse, God says that he loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. And he's, Paul is reaching back into the Old Testament. When it says that God hated Esau, it doesn't mean that he hated him and he never loved them. The idea is that God put Esau second and Jacob first. That's how God's love is. He puts us first. He sacrifices. So when it says that we hated others, quite literally Paul's saying we put other people below ourselves. We always put ourselves first and we're prideful, arrogant, selfish people. (laughs) That's who we are. Let's throw a party and celebrate, right? Awful words. What, do we, what, what good do we have? You see, brothers and sisters, I think that our church, the church in America, we've been plagued with this idea that in Christ, we're now better than everyone else. Here's what I mean. We have this high and mighty air about us of pride and arrogance because we've been saved and God's transformed our lives. And with that, I say amen. Praise God that you're not the same person and neither am I. But guess what, brother? Guess what, sister? It wasn't you. It was God's grace in your life that changed you. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about pride. He says, the vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. Hear this. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Church family, when we act better than others in Christ, we are not representing the Christ of the gospel. Let it not be said among us as Christians that we're prideful, arrogant people, but rather that we're humble and meek. So these next verses, Paul moves away from we needed to be saved, and now he shows us what saved us. 
What was it that interrupted this evil and this uh, disobedience in our lives? He says in verse three, or in verse four, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. What was it that saved us? It was God's goodness and loving kindness. And I'm not even gonna begin to try and explain to you the love of God. You know why? Because Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 that to understand God's love is impossible because it surpasses knowledge. Here's the beauty of it, though. As Christians, for the rest of our lives, we will begin to know more and more and more of God's love. And one day in eternity, we'll see it in person. But rather than trying to explain God's love for you, Uh, One professor of mine, he said that every New Testament doctrine has an Old Testament picture. And so that's what I want to do. I want to take you to the Old Testament and show you a picture of God's loving kindness. So go to 2 Samuel chapter 9, or you can just listen either way. In, In this chapter, David is rising as king over Israel, and Saul has just been killed. Now, culture said that if a king was taking over, what they were to do was to kill any of the heirs of the previous king because they didn't want a previous heir to overthrow the king. So David is doing that, and he's asking, who's left in Saul's camp? And there was one heir left. His name? Mephibosheth, (laughs) of all names. Listen, I looked for another illustration so I wouldn't have to say that name, and it was impossible. (laughs) But his name was Mephibosheth, and here's what we need to know about him. He was crippled, he was lame, he was unable to do anything for himself. And David, giving us a picture of who Jesus would be, rather than killing Mephibosheth, you know what he does? He picks him up, and he walks him to the king's table, And he sits him down and he says, you eat with my sons now. (laughs) And Mephibosheth looks at him and he says this, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? This is God's goodness and loving kindness towards humanity. We are all Mephibosheths. We're lame and crippled, unable to do anything for ourselves to save us. But God in his mercy and in his love has picked us up and sat us at the table and he says, feast, son, feast, daughter, you are mine. No longer do you belong to this inferior king, Saul. You belong to me. That's what Jesus has said to you in the gospel. Praise God. So we see what has saved us is God's goodness and loving and kindness. But who saved us? Who, how does that show up? Well, look at verse 4. It shows up in our Savior. Who's our Savior? His name is Jesus. He's the one who has left all of his glory, oh, has left the right side of the Father, wrapped himself in humanity, was born in a manger to a virgin in a city that was constantly insulted. That's your savior. But you know what else is true of your savior? We just sang about it. He went down to hell and he took the keys and he said, death is mine now. And in him, you're free and you're saved. That's your Jesus. Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Hear me loud and clear this morning. Jesus is the only way 
you're saved. There's no other name, no other person, only Jesus. You see, look what verse five says though. He saved us as past tense, meaning the work has already been done. I wear this bracelet on my wrist to remind me of this. On the, word, or on the front side, it says tetelestai, which is a Greek word that means it is finished. It's what Jesus said on the cross when he died, meaning that everything you need for salvation, he has done. What he requires of you is to simply accept it in faith and walk with him. But one other thing, because this is past tense and he saved us, your salvation can't be taken away. You're saved and you're set at the table and guess what? You ain't leaving the table. So Jesus has saved us. Notice the fourth thing. Why has he saved us? He says in verse five, it's not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's not what we've done, but rather, listen, it's according to his own mercy. You see, I don't understand the ways of God. I don't understand why in his mercy and his grace he would save sinners. Every day I wake up and I say, God, why would you save me? And then why in the world would you call me to preach your great gospel message? I'm so unworthy of it. So I claim Isaiah 55, 9 to you today that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And while I don't understand why God has shown mercy, I do know this. He's shown it, no doubt in my mind. And he has done that through Jesus. And so salvation doesn't ride on our performance, but it rides on the back of God's grace and mercy. Let's get the fifth thing, how were we saved? We were saved obviously by Jesus' death on the cross, but there's something deeper going on here. And Paul tells us this at the end of verse five. He says, it's by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This idea of washing is that when we accept Christ, we're cleansed of all of our sins. No longer when Jesus looks at us does he see a sinner, he sees perfect righteousness in our place. So we've been washed, this idea of regeneration. Paul's reaching back to John chapter three with Jesus and Nicodemus, where Jesus tells Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Unless they're born from above, there's no shot. And Paul tells us it's the Holy Spirit who does this you see, what he's talking about here is simply what happens spiritually that we show in baptism, right? When we dunk someone underwater and we pull them up, there's nothing actually happen happening there other than they get wet and they come back up. But what it's symbolic of is that we're buried with Christ in his death and we're raised as he was raised to walk in newness of life. The regeneration process is what the Holy Spirit does in our heart. But notice it's not just regeneration. There's also this renewal process. Now, Paul uses this same word in another letter where he wrote to Rome in chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This idea of renewal is sanctification. It's the idea of renovating a house. You know what I mean when I say that. We go into the house and you're like, Okay, I don't like the cabinets, we'll tear those out. I don't like the carpet, let's tear that out. And then we go in and we put what we want. This is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives as believers. We've been saved, we're a new creature, but we still have this old sinful flesh on us. And God comes in and he says, you're not gonna have that if you're my son. And he rips it out 
and he puts something in our place so that we will look more and more like Jesus. So we're being renewed. But how is this done? Through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse six. He, he says that the Spirit has been poured out on us richly. The idea behind this word richly is like a really wealthy person. Just insane amount of money and possessions and abundance. So what Paul is telling us here is that we have more than we will ever need of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Find comfort in this statement right here. There is no task or duty God will ask you to do where the Spirit will not be sufficient in carrying you through. You hear what I said? There's nothing God's gonna ask you to do that the Spirit doesn't have the power to help you do it. You've been given more than enough of the Spirit. And so you ask, how do I get down on my knees and wash the feet of someone who murdered someone in my family? You do it because of God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. That's how. Because you've been given him the Holy Spirit and it's rich and he is abundant. So the last thing that I want us to see here is we've been saved. So what? Look at verse 7. Paul gives us one more theological nugget here. He says, being justified by grace, we become heirs. And this idea of justification, perhaps you've heard of this if you've been in the church. I love the way Pastor Brandon says it, that justification is just as if I never sinned. That's how God views us, that we've been born again, that we're new, that we're not, no longer sinners in his eyes. But there's a little controversy over justification. Because there's two places in scripture that talk about justification, but they talk about how it happens in different ways. Here's what I mean. In Galatians 2, Paul says that we're justified by our faith. And he's reaching back into Genesis where Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul says, we're justified by faith. But then if you flip a couple more books over and you go to James, in James chapter two, James says, no, you're not just justified by faith, it's faith and works, because faith without works is dead. And so we, we feel this tension of, is it works that justifies us, or is it faith? And Paul says here in Titus, it's both and. You see, Paul says that we're justified by grace in Titus, and so here's the illustration that I want you to think of. Think of a balance scale with two plates on each side. And everything but the plates is labeled God's grace. And the plate on the left is labeled faith, and the plate on the right is labeled works. And so literally what holds up our faith and our works is God's grace, and collectively those things make up justification. So how have you been justified? How have you been made righteous before God? God's grace. And God's grace exhibits itself in faith and in works. But listen, church family, when we emphasize faith over works, that balance becomes unbalanced. And when we emphasize works over faith, it's unbalanced the other way, and we are misrepresenting who God is. And we're misrepresenting his gospel. Grace holds it up. And the effects of this justification is that we are all Mephibosheths sitting at the Lord's table. And the hope that we have of eternal life is this, Revelation 21, John records that God says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Church family, what a hope we have to one day sit at the table with the king and feast and he's gonna wipe away my eyes and there's not gonna be any sin left. And I'll praise him and I'll say the words, holy, holy, holy for eternity. Do you long for that day? So we've seen how Paul has told us the gospel, these beautiful books. But he's going to say there's one more bookend we have to talk about to hold this up. So in verses 8 through 11, notice with me that followers of Jesus must remain unified counterculturally. Followers of Jesus must remain unified counterculturally. You see, Paul's going to move from talking about commands just to the world, but now he's going to command us to do things inside the church. Because as we're unified as a church, the world will look onto us and say, there's something different. This gospel really is changing lives. And Paul tells Titus, insist upon these things. What are these things? It's the gospel. Let me translate this for you. Here's how my, my good friend Blythe Wall would say this. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. That's what Paul's commanding Titus. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Remind yourself when you wake in the morning that you're a sinner saved by God's grace. And that the hope of that grace is that one day you'll sit at his table in all of eternity. Because when we preach the gospel to ourselves and when we're reminded of our sinfulness and God's grace, it will demand countercultural living in our lives. You wanna know why the church doesn't look any different from the world today? Because we don't dwell on the gospel. We've taken the gospel as Christians and we've put it on the shelf and said, yeah, that was good when I was a sinner, but now I'm past it. Listen, that's not the gospel. The gospel is needed for every Christian. We constantly need to repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus. And when we're reminded of that, countercultural living will be evident in our lives. Think of it this way. As the roots of the gospel sink deeper and deeper into our lives, we will bear more fruit. You see, a lot of us, we have really shallow root systems and we're not bearing much fruit. My encouragement to you is dwell upon the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. You see, because these things are profitable for people, according to Paul in this passage. He's echoing the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we do good works as believers, the world looks at us and says there's a difference and they give glory to our God. You see, so Paul is gonna tell us to be unified in in these ways. He's gonna give us a list of things not to do. Look at the first one he says in verse nine. Avoid foolish controversies. You say, what's a foolish controversy? It's a godless conversation. It's any conversation that you're having with someone that is not working itself to the gospel or is not pertaining to the mission of the church. And Paul says, avoid those. Shun them. Literally, uh, some of you guys, maybe you've seen the, the The Office, the TV show. And there's an episode in The Office where there's two characters and one of them is shunning the other character. 
And it's humorous because it's so silly. And one character, he'll go, shun, and he won't talk to the other character. And then if he has to say something to him, he'll go, unshun, say it, reshun. And it's so foolish. But that's the idea that Paul's giving us here. He's saying when people have these godless conversations with you, shun, I don't need to hear that. You see, there's too little time with too great of a mission for us to be talking about godless things. So not only are we to avoid foolish controversies, he also says avoid genealogies. What are genealogies? In in this time period, they were so enthralled with the idea of where they came from in their family and that there were certain generations and that they could predict when Jesus was coming back. Paul says, don't even talk about that. Don't talk about genealogies, not even dissensions or quarreling or quarrels about the law. He says they're unprofitable and worthless. They're youth, youth, useless and futile. Listen closely, church. There's a lot of junk going on in the church of Jesus Christ today. Here locally, here in our city, globally, can I encourage you to shun godless conversations, to avoid men and women who are trying to have conversations that's rooted in bitterness. Because what they're trying to do is to simply cause division in the church. And when we're divided, we stop making disciples. We stop sharing the gospel and people stop getting baptized. We must be unified. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, now, Tanner, how am I supposed to show perfect courtesy to these people? Like, it's kind of rude to just shun someone. Well, Paul tells us in verse 10 that we're to warn them two times. He's reaching back to chapter 1 where he's already told Titus to rebuke them in love. He says, after that, reject them. This word that Paul uses for a divisive person Do you know what it translates into in English? A heretic. Paul says that when you're divisive in the church, you're a heretic. You are being antagonistic to the gospel and to the church. Listen, church family, our gospel is not one that divides, but one that unites. Would you stand with me for prayer? This gospel that's been given to us, there's only one word that describes it, and it's gracious. And so my response to you, my question to you today is simply this. When people look at your life, what do they see? Do they see bookends with no books? and say, what a, what a moral life. What a, they, they do so many good works, but they question why, they do, why you do it. Because there's no purpose for bookends with no books. There's no purpose for living counterculturally unless you understand God's gracious gospel. Or do they look at your life and do they see the books on the shelf and they see a gracious gospel, but there's no bookends. And so the books are all laid over and you say, listen to this beautiful truth of how Jesus has saved you, and they say, yeah, but I've seen your life and it doesn't look that beautiful to me. 
A gracious gospel demands countercultural living. Brothers and sisters, we need to repent. But also, if you're someone who you've never accepted God's goodness and loving kindness, come talk to me. We'll have pastors down here at the front. Let's talk about putting some books on the shelf. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we're so unworthy of your grace and your mercy. But Lord, we're so thankful that you've picked us up as lame and crippled sinners. God, and you set us at the table and called us son and called us daughter. And Lord, we long for the day when you return. Lord, and we'll spend eternity with you. So Father, move in the hearts and lives of these people today. God, make Green Street Baptist Church a church after your own heart. I pray that High Point, North Carolina would see our countercultural living and know of your gracious gospel. Be glorified, Jesus, in your name. Amen.